Good morning. It's great to be with you today. Uh, my name is Jay. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I get to help lead this great community called Cultivate. Welcome to our family gathering. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been in the book of James over the last 12 weeks or so, and we've been working through kind of verse by verse the letter that James wrote to uh, believers that he once pastored who have scattered from Jerusalem to other areas in the Middle East. And they're now struggling with their new life in these new contexts. And James, as a pastor, is writing to these people to explain to them how to live in their new context, how to be people that know how to connect the truth of the gospel with their everyday lives in new experiences and in new ways because they're, they're being called to things they've never been called to before. And so we've been looking through uh, this letter. We're going to finish up next week, but it's been a, a great uh, time of just... Um, hearing from God and, and what he wants to say to us. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, we, we talked about the rich, and, and James had a lot of strong things to say uh, to the rich people that were part of the community because they were oppressing the poor. Today, we're going to get the flip side, and he's going to address those who are being oppressed, and he's going to encourage them and exhort them to some things that, that we probably need to hear as well in terms of our own everyday lives. So we're going to be on page 849. And we're going to be in James 5, and we're going to start in verse 7 and go to verse 12. So 849 in the Bibles that are under the seats uh, in front of you, if you want to follow along, they'll be on the screen as well. This is what he has to say. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Um, One of the things, I don't know if it struck you, but it struck me as we've been going through this letter, is that James is always seeming to write about things that happen in everyday life. That's the reason we call this series Everyday Gospel Wisdom, is because he is confronting kind of the everyday attitudes and actions, things that we, we that, that happen just on a, on a normal basis. So, you know, he, he, he covers things like indulgence and the way that we use our money and the way that we use our words and whether or not they're condemning or building people up, our relationships and whether or not they're wise and full of wisdom, temptations. They're, they're everyday things. And so today he's going to shift and start talking about impatience, or if you want to put it positively, patience, and specifically grumbling and complaining and and maybe being impatient with our circumstances. Throughout the whole letter, James is sharing wisdom for everyday life. But here's the thing I, I hope that you're catching as we've been going through this, is that as he's doing this, talking about these things, one of the things that he's showing us, I think, that's been so apparent to me that I didn't realize before we actually started going through the book of James is that the really big battles that you and I have, 
Like the, the huge, enormous struggles that we have, the, 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 the process and the, the path to becoming more like Jesus in all of life, it actually doesn't happen in like the big, huge, monumental moments and decisions that we often think it does. You know, like if, if you think about like becoming a different kind of person or becoming like Jesus, when do you often think that it happens? You think that it happens like when it happens in movies over these big, huge things that go on in life. And you're like, man, I was this person, then this enormous thing happened, and now I'm this person. And James goes, no, 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 that's not actually when the growth happens. That's not when the decisions come. The way that you know how you're, who you are going to be in the future, and you and I, according to the Bible, we're going to exist one billion years from now. I don't know if you knew that, but we will. One way or another, you and I will go on for eternity because we were made to be eternal beings, even though we don't live out our eternity here on this place. But the way that you determine who that person is going to be one billion years from now, all of that happens in the small everyday choices that you make in the mundane stuff of everyday living. That's when it happens. It doesn't happen in the big times. It happens in the little times. It doesn't happen in the public times. It happens in the private times. Who you are there and who you are becoming there is determining who you are everywhere. And so you can come here on a Sunday morning and put on a certain front and a certain face And that actually isn't determinative of who you are actually becoming. Who you are becoming on Monday morning is actually who you are. And that's the person that James cares about. Because that's the person that God cares about. Because he wants that person, the person you are when nobody else is looking, to become the person who is more like Jesus. Yeah, you can come on a Sunday morning. You can say that you believe. You can raise your hands in the air. You can sing loudest among all the people. But the question is, are you becoming like him when no one's around, when no one's looking. See, because we often think of the times when we're not like Jesus, like the, the, the sinful areas of our hearts, the broken areas of our hearts and times, you know, like the big stuff, right? Like lying and murdering and forging and, you know, physically abusing others. And here's what happens. We think of those big, huge things, those marquee-type sins, and we go, yeah, I'm not that, so I'm okay. I'm not doing those things, therefore I feel like I stack up pretty well against other people. Because I'm not like them. I mean, yeah, I'm not great. I'm not perfect. But I'm not that person. But then you look at the list of the things that James confronts throughout the whole letter, and you start to scratch your head a bit. Because the things that he condemns aren't those big things. They're little things like jealousy and gossip and hoarding and ugh, impatience. How many of you feel like you're, in, you're a patient person all the time with everyone in every circumstance? <sighs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> See, and that's the point. They're, they're attitudes and things that are in our own hearts. They're the way that you live out everyday life, every moment. Because here's the thing. Once you realize that those are the things that are under the microscope in terms of how God views your progress to maturity, you and I should at that point go, man, I need some help. I am so far from the goal. 
I felt that throughout this whole series as we've been going through this. Every week I'm like, gosh, I have so much more to go. And then you get to impatience at the very end and you're like, that's the dagger in the heart, you know? But it also means this. It means that the way to becoming more like Jesus happens in every decision that you make, in every action that you take, in every attitude that's in place in your heart every single day. Which means today... This morning is the day that you are either becoming more like Jesus or less like him. Today is the day that one of those two things are happening. Tomorrow morning is the morning that one of those two things happen. You can't escape it. It's happening. So how do you know which it is? How do you know if you're becoming more like Jesus or less like him? Um... Well, let me ask you guys that. We often dialogue here. What do you think? Yeah, your spouse has a pretty good view of your uh, your heart, right? You can fool us. It's hard to fool them. How do you know you're becoming more like Jesus? Yeah, when you want to, when nothing in your heart screams patience, everything is saying, "Take the reins, take control." You want to be impatient, and yet something overrides that, and you end up being patient in the face of impatience. Yep. In the back. What comes out of your mouth? Yeah, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. So you know what you believe and in whom you trust by what your mouth is actually saying. Are there words that are full of life and hope and peace and comfort and joy, or are they words to the contrary? Yeah, right. When you when when a thought hits your mind that sounds a whole lot like Jesus, and you wouldn't produce that in yourself in, in in your own heart otherwise, but you find yourself compelled to follow it anyway, even though it doesn't make sense to you. Yeah, right. So you be in, in a sense you become more other centered. You start to notice people that you didn't notice before. And you, not, not just in a way that, like, of all the ways that they annoy you, but what God might want to do in that person and the fact that he may want to use you to do it. Huge indication, right? I was trying to think of, like, how, how, does, how do you summarize that? Like, in a statement, I, I think this gets close to it. I, to become more like Jesus is to live your life more according to the way that Jesus lived it, which, if you think of Jesus, is to live an other-centered life. Because Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served. Even though he was the King of Heaven, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The other way to say that is, my life for yours. My life for you. I will give my life, my time, my resources, my energy for you. And so that means that the opposite of the life that Jesus designed us for is the opposite way to say that. Instead of my life for you, it's your life for me. And that's how you know. If you're becoming, over time, more of the kind of person that says to everyone around you, all your neighbors and your family and your friends and your coworkers, your life for mine, your time for mine, your position for mine, me above you, you're becoming less like him. But 
The opposite is to say, the more your life is becoming an expression of Jesus, which is my life for you, the more you're becoming like him because it's he, it's he, he, he is the one who's doing it in you. He's the one who's doing it through you. See, Jesus is a lifestyle of kindness and humility and generosity in all of life. It's using your life for others. And the opposite of that, which James would say is motivated by hell itself, is a life of pettiness and jealousy and self-pity and harshness. It's a life that says, you for me. Which means, and this is, I think, the way that James would put it, that at every moment you are either becoming more of a son of God or a son of hell. One or the other is happening. My life for yours or your life for mine. And now here's, here's the point. This is why I'm getting into this. Because since the way of Jesus happens in the everyday stuff of life, things like patience actually do matter. Things, if You can't discount that and go, well, I, I go to church, I do all the right things, I, I pray, I read my Bible, I, all these things are happening, I see fruit in maybe other areas of life, but that whole patience thing... I mean, I'm never going to be a patient person. Why even try? No, try. <laughs> it matters because it's part of everyday life. Now, now, there are a couple ways that James starts to talk about patience. There's, there, there's patience with people and then there's patience with God. And we're going to talk about both of those things this morning. Patience with people is, is what he talks about in verse 7 and 9. The Greek word for the word patience that's in the NIV here is the word macrothumia, which just means slow to anger. It means to put up with a lot without trying to get revenge on the people that you have to put up with. And then there's patience with God, which in verse 11 he talks about as being endurance. And this is, we talked about this term already, it's, it's hupomeno, which means to hyperstand. It means to stand firm in the face of opposition. It's, it's to not be moved by anything. It's to be patient and to obey God no matter how hard life gets, to be able to stand firm no matter what the circumstances are. See, there are two kinds of patience here. And, and this is my, my theory. You are probably good at one and terrible at the other. You're probably great at one. And when you think about patience, you're like, yeah, I'm not doing so bad. I'm patient with people. But then something bad happens in your life and you fly off the handle. You're completely unchained. Well, you don't really have patience then because you only have the one kind and not the other. Or you could be really patient with your circumstances and just go, it's God's will, I will move into it, no big deal. Everything just kind of washes off your back. But as soon as someone else does something against you, you're like, that rat. (laughs) Which is it? Do you struggle with people or you, do you struggle with life? Some, some of you are like, I, both hands are up. <laughs> I need help. Well, the, the good news is that James says there's a way to develop patience in both areas. So let's look at these. Patience with people. Um, <laughs> it's really convicting, right? Because he, he could have said something really easy for us to obey. He could have said, look, when people mistreat you, and he's talking to people who have been mistreated, right? These are, this is the other half of the equation. Last week we talked about the rich people that were oppressing the poor. Now he's talking to the poor people who moved into a new city and they're being taken advantage of by their employers. 
They're working a day's wage out in the field and then they're not getting paid for it. And so he says, look, when that happens to you, you know, just don't scream at them. Don't don't kill them. Don't call them names. Don't get violent. Don't. No, he doesn't say that. Because it would be easy to obey if he said that. Don't be extreme when someone does something against you. But this is what he says in verse 9. Don't what? (sighs) Grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. When you go out into the fields and you work your darndest all day long by the sweat of your brow and you go to your boss to get your day's wage, which you have earned, by the way, and your boss says, no, I'm not going to give it to you today. Don't go home to your wife and complain about how bad of a boss he is. How hard is that? Some of you complain against your bosses, and they're, all they're doing is, is having a strong personality. They're not withholding a paycheck from you. Can you imagine if they were withholding your paycheck? How, how strong of a conversation you'd have with your spouse when you got home? That's so-and-so. I can't believe what they did to me. How dare they? Don't grumble. Are you kidding me, James? Don't grumble. Grumbling is the least of what I want to do to this person. (laughs) See, grumbling is complaining about people. It's griping against them. It's tearing them down when they're not around. It's always finding fault with people. It's always nitpicking at their behavior. It's always saying, man, they always do this, or they never do this, or "I, I hate when they're this way, or man, I wish they weren't around so much. See, this is serious stuff because James, he he doesn't just say, you know, like try to limit it. It's not too bad, but just try to keep it in check. No, what does he say? He says the judge is at the door and they're not here to judge them. They're here to judge you for grumbling against them. You're like, how in the world is this fair, James? Are you kidding me? And yet he's saying those who grumble about other people are condemned by the judge of the universe. Now somebody is going to go, not that I'm grumbling, but what the heck? (laughs) Here's the thing you got to see. God doesn't just condemn things for the sake of condemning something. It's not, he doesn't just take stuff away from you because you enjoy the things. And oftentimes that's the way that we see God. It's like, I'm enjoying something or I, I'm clinging to something and God just wants to rip it out of my hands because he, he's against fun. <laughs> he's just against grumbling because I enjoy grumbling. He never works that way. He's like a doctor. He's like a physician who comes in and goes, no, I'm only going to take out the things that are harmful for you. The reason I'm doing surgery on you to remove this is not because it's a vital organ that you need. It's because it's killing the other organs. And it needs to be removed. And God always operates the same way. He doesn't just condemn the things that that we like. He condemns the things that are eating at our souls. He he condemns the things that are damaging to the life that He designed for us to live. He, he, He takes out the things that are destroying the peace that He created you to experience. 
That God created the world to be a place full of harmony and peace, which means anything that attacks that peace, he will do battle with and remove it like a surgeon who removes cancer. If you're willing to get up on the operating table. See, the reason that James takes this so seriously, and I know, it seems like James takes everything seriously. I get it, okay? He's a serious guy. But the reason he takes this so seriously is because grumbling and complaining is the fruit of something that's incredibly toxic to your heart. Incredibly toxic. Um, If you haven't read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, please go out and read it. I'm making it like, I don't often do this with books, but I haven't read it since college. But man, it's a great book. And it's a a dream, if you will. It's It's kind of a... A tale about a man who uh, is is viewing some uh, an occurrence that's happening where uh, the people who are in hell are taking a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven, and the people from heaven and hell are interacting with one another. Now, I know the concept is far-fetched, because it's not like he's saying this is what actually happens. It's fiction, okay? But he's using this as a tool to teach uh, several critical things. And, and so the people from heaven are called the bright people and the people from hell are called ghosts. And they interact. And the author has a guide that's teaching him about what he's experiencing as he goes along. And one of the encounters that they have is with someone who's a grumbler, a complainer. And, and they have this interaction with the grumbler and she kind of appears out of nowhere and is just grumbling and complaining and going on and on about she did this and they did that and this wasn't fair and how could they have done this over and over and over again. And they try over and over and over again while she's in the midst of this grumble to to get a word in edgewise, just to have a conversation with her and she just doesn't have it. In fact, she doesn't even realize that they're there. And eventually she just walks away, continuing to grumble. And, And this is the conversation that happens between the author And the teacher, what troubles you, son, said my teacher. I'm very troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the kind of person that ought to be in hell. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who's gotten into the habit of grumbling. Ah, said my teacher, that's what she once was. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. Well, of course she's a grumbler. I shouldn't have thought there's any doubt about that. Yeah, but you misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumble, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes... We'll not go on blowing until our eyes are full forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler, I asked. Well, the whole whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood about hell is that it's nearly nothing at all. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, 
going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. See, the the problem with the woman is that she was so focused on herself that she couldn't even tell if other people were around her. Now, when did that start? Today. This morning. And this is what God always says. A life that is consumed with itself rather than others and rather than God is hell. It's a life of self-absorption. It's a life of saying, why isn't this happening for me? And why can't they do that for me? And why don't they see? And why isn't this? And why, 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 why? See, hell is your life for mine. There's nothing more enslaving than looking at every situation and saying, what, in the, what is in this for me? Uh, haven't you been around people who are halfway to hell? who can't talk about anything except themselves, how fun is it to be around those kinds of people? Not too great, right? See, that's why James says this is no joke. Grumbling will kill you and it will alienate you from everyone around you. That's why God condemns it, because it's cancer. So how do you deal with it? How do you get the cancer out? How do you overcome the toxic issue? Well, you have to remember that what is the opposite of grumbling? What's the opposite of being impatient with people? It's macrothumia, right? It's patience. It is being slow to anger. It's putting up with a whole lot without revenging yourself. I was thinking of it this way. It's being like a shock absorber. So somebody grates against you, And rather than getting all uptight and all furious and, oh, I can't believe they did that again, you absorb the shock. You absorb the impact. You absorb the the friction that the person gives you. Now, how do you do that? Well, we have to meet the one who does it. Um, in Exodus 34, there's a, this, the scene where God reveals himself to Moses. And he says, I'm going to put you up on a mountain and I'm going to reveal my glory to you. When I go by, you'll know who I am. And Moses says, okay, I want to know who you are. I want to see you. And so God says, well, you can't see me face to face. I'll pass by you and then you'll see the backside of me. But I'll introduce myself to you. This is who I am. And this is what God says. In Exodus 34, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. This is his name, the Lord. And he passed by Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. See, Moses gets to meet God himself in person. And one of the things that God says when he introduces himself is he says, this is my name, Macrothumia, slow to anger. Nice to meet you. See, there's a way to develop patience for people. You want to know how it is? It's a beautiful thing. I don't often give promises from up here, but this is one. There is a way that works any time that you start to get irritable with people. Whenever you start to get impatient, whenever you feel the urge to grumble against someone, there is actually a way to become patient and loving and slow to anger and gracious. And my experience is when you 
operate out of this principle, it works absolutely every time. Yes, I'm making a, a blanket statement here. I don't often do this, but I'm doing it now. Wouldn't you love to know what it is? The way to do it is that whenever someone tears down your patience, whenever someone taxes you, immediately with the Spirit's help, you need to remember how you have worn down and taxed the patience of God himself who is slow to anger. Uh, Tim Keller shares a great illustration when he's talking about this. He was a, a kid and he saw a boy that was pulling a cat out of a river. And as the, the boy was rescuing the cat from the river, what, was, what do you think the cat was doing? <laughs> clawing and scratching and biting and just completely bloodying up the boy's arm. And when he got out of the river, his arm was just dripping with blood, but there the cat is, safe and sound. See, if you want to become a more patient person with others, you need to go back and remember all of the times where God was feeding you, saving you, protecting you, holding you, and at the very least, you were indifferent and ungrateful and totally ignoring him, but maybe at the worst, you were biting and scratching him the entire time that he was saving you. You go back and you remember all the times when you were that cat being pulled out of the river, clawing and scratching the whole way when God was doing exactly what you needed at the moment that you needed it, but you could not see it. Can you think of a time that that was true in your life? I can think of thousands (laughs) for me. See, the irony is if you don't see how much you've tested God's patience even though he was good to you, if you, in other words, if you don't see how sinful you are, you will, you will inevitably grumble against the sinners in your life if you don't count yourself among those who sin against God. You will. In fact, the biggest grumblers and the biggest complainers have absolute blind spots to see all the ways that they have taxed the patience of God over the course of their entire lifetime. But when you see it, When you get in touch with it yourself, when you see God's goodness in spite of your sin, the first thing that happens is that you become patient like him. Now, I want to give a disclaimer because someone's going to go and try this. (laughs) And they're going to be like, I did it. Not, you know, someone's going to come back to me next week and go, not that I'm grumbling, but... You know, so-and-so did this to me, and then I just, you know, I said, I know you've been patient with me. God, you've been patient with me. Help me to be patient with this person. God, you've been patient with me. You've done it. Help me to see it. And then you don't see it. And then you come back and you go, Jay, it didn't work. And I'll say, you didn't listen. (laughs) Because this is how it works. You can't just tell yourself that God has been patient with you. You need him to show you times when you've needed his patience. And it'll happen. I'm sure it'll happen this week. Someone's going to do something against you, and you're going to be like, oh, it happened. Jay told me it was going to happen. I didn't believe him, and then it happened, and now I want to grumble. What do I do? 
And at that moment, you need to ask God to show you a specific circumstance when you did exactly what they did to you to him. And the moment you get it, it will unlock something in your heart and you will go, that's it. I'm going to be patient because he was patient with me. This last week, I was um, bringing our oldest son to a a summer camp at uh, the school that he's going to go to this summer, but it's a new experience for him. And so he's very apprehensive of going. And Mandy tried to bring him and it didn't go well and and he wouldn't stay and, you know, like, try as we might, we can't get these, te- like, teenage and 20-year-old camp counselors to, like, pull him off mom's arm and just, you know, hijack him into the room. They just don't operate that way. So so it didn't work out. And so I had to be the one that brought him on Monday. And, uh, and so I'm bringing him there, and we're talking about it the whole time, and we're getting ready, and I can feel his anxiety rising. And, and the more his anxiety rises, the more it's grating on me and the more impatient that I'm getting with him. And I'm just thinking in my, eye, in, in my own mind, like before all this is happening, I'm just going to go and like drop him and run. Like this, <laughs> like none of this, like, you know, um, being patient and kind and, and sweet and generous. I'm just going to like kick him out of the van and like just, <laughs> just keep on driving, right? It's going to happen. And so we get there, and I'm, I'm getting more and more impatient with him. And he's getting more and more anxious and more and more scared. And I'm standing outside with him, and I'm like, gosh, I, like, I wish he would just go in. Why doesn't he just go in? Like, it's not a big deal. It's called morning fun for a reason. You're going to have fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> And, of course, I was, you know, writing this sermon at the same time. So, so, um, so I'm standing out there with him and all of a sudden I realize like the reason that he's doing this is because he's like his dad. It's not his fault. He, he's, he's a perfect image bearer of his dad who, who, who hates going into new experiences, who is always resisting God dropping him off somewhere to do something new, who wants to remain in the comfortable, in the isolated, and doesn't want to make new friends, just wants to, to, to stay in the, in the shallow end of the pool. And all of a sudden I remembered all these times when, when God brought me somewhere new, when he gave me a new experience, when he introduced me to new people. And, and, and what I remember saying was, when I did that for you, I didn't just leave you at the curb. I went in with you. I didn't just drop you off. I didn't just kick you out the door. I went in with you. I never left you. And yet, over and over again, you seem to fail to trust me every time I bring something new. Why don't you just trust me and walk hand in hand with me? And can you do that with your son? So I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to go in with him then. So I walk in. And we decide we're going to go in and try to play a game. And, and so we walk in and we walk. They had gone out to the back by that point. So we walk through the school, go to the back, and we get out the back door. And who's there but his good friend? And all of a sudden, his whole complexion changed. 
and, and, and all of a sudden he went from being afraid to being embracing of this new experience because he wanted to do it with his friend. And it, what seemed so difficult to me and, and brought so much impatience in my heart now just became so easy because now I'm just like, he's going to play with his new friend and I can, sit, I can walk away. And, and, and rather than tear myself away from him kicking and screaming and crying, I walked back to my car and he waves to me and goes, Dad, I love you. And I got to rehearse all the times in the car. On the, now I'm on my way to work, rather than being impatient with my son, just being so thankful that God reminded me of those things. Remember what he did for you. Remember what he keeps doing for you so that you can do it to others. See, to the degree, the degree that you see that God is slow to anger with you is the degree that you'll be slow to anger with others. Try it this week. All right, the second kind of patience is patience with God. Now, what do you mean patience with God? Like, how, how in the world can we be impatient with God? Well, um, how many of you become impatient with life circumstances when they don't go your way? Huh? When, when you have a certain plan on Monday morning and it doesn't go according to your plan, how many of you get frustrated immediately with that? Well, who do you think is changing the plan? <laughs> It's him. Now, you might think, why would he do something like that? But here's the point. We need to develop patience with God as well, which means you, you can't have patience with God without having patience with the circumstances of your life and particularly with hard times. Because there are many of you that are really patient with people, but the moment something happens in your life that isn't according to your plan, you completely flip out. And you become like a different kind of person. You're like, how in the world could this happen? God, why would you do this to me? This wasn't the plan. And he goes, yeah, it wasn't my plan for you to do this the whole time. Are you patient when life doesn't go your way? Now, I mean, there's a trivial side to this, but there's a deeper side too. I mean, I was talking with um, our neighbors this week and um, their son just got married last weekend. And uh, the night before his, their, their son was married, their nephew um, passed away from an asthma attack right before the wedding rehearsal. And they're just shattered and completely broken. And, and, and I you know, talked to the dad and I'm like, you know, how are you doing with all this? And he's like, I'm angry. I'm just, I'm so frustrated. I don't know why this would happen. How do you develop the ability to hyperstand, to be patient, to, to endure actual real suffering? Well, James gives you the answer. He says this in verse 10 and 11, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. See, James isn't talking to people who, who hit too many red lights on the way to work. He's talking to people who are being oppressed. And they're, they're, they're really struggling with not enduring. They want to give up. They want to move back to Jerusalem. They, they, they want to go back. They want to get out. 
Like, how in the world can this be God's will for you to, to move me from Jerusalem to this place and now I'm being oppressed in this new place? Why would you do this? I was okay back there. Now I'm here and I'm not. And James says to these people, look, if you want to endure, if you want to develop patience in the midst of these very difficult circumstances, look at the prophets. <laughs> in other words... If you think your life is bad, (laughs) you look at them. Uh, We think of prophets as being like these people that are impervious to anything that happens in life. It sucked to be a prophet. It really did. Uh, Now, uh, let's take a few as an example. Let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. You know what God said to Isaiah? He showed him a vision of the glory of the Lord. I mean, can you imagine seeing the Lord in the temple? The the temple was full of the train and the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah is overwhelmed by this. I can't believe I'm seeing this. This is incredible. Send me. And God goes, okay, I'm going to send you, but no one's going to believe you. Everyone's going to think you're nuts. You're going to give them a message for 20 to 30 years and no one's going to listen to the message. No one's going to believe it ever. Go ahead. How about Jeremiah? Whew, Jeremiah. Jeremiah preaches at a time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were warring against Israel. And God comes to him and gives Jeremiah a message. And you think it's going to be a message of hope, a message of salvation, a message of like, hey, Israel's going to be okay. But instead, he goes, this is what I want you to tell my people. Right now, my plan is that this country is going to come in and take everything. This king and this pagan nation are actually my divine instrument of discipline. And so here's what I want you to do. You're going to lose. I want you to let them in and surrender everything that you have and I want you to obey this foreign king. (laughs) Not a popular message. And and so Israel doesn't like that message. They refuse. And so they're destroyed and Jerusalem is leveled. The the people are taken off into exile and then God comes to Jeremiah again. And, and, And... They're like, great, we have a new message from God. He's going to deliver us. He's going to save us. No way are we submitting to these pagan people. And God says this to the exiles. Jeremiah 29. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Also, (laughs) also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, you're going to be there a while. Settle down. Settle in. Get used to it. And oh, by the way, be a blessing to your enemies and help their city thrive. (laughs) I, I mean, I just imagine Jeremiah like, are you telling me I have to say this to my own people? That it's your will to surrender, to give up, and then to make their evil empire better i mean it's a little like the red sox saying like we're going to forfeit our team we're all going to move to new york city and we're going to play for the yankees that's the best illustration i can come up with (laughs) you mean this is going to be my career for the next 20 years everyone's going to think i'm a traitor and they did in fact the people from his own hometown try to kill him 
He had a miserable life. Hosea. God comes to Hosea and says, you know, I need a prophet, but you're never going to be the kind of prophet I need until you understand what my life is like. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a wife, and her name is Gomer, and she will never, ever, ever be faithful to you. You're going to marry her, and you're going to be faithful to her, but she's going to be unfaithful to you. In fact, she's going to continually commit adultery against you. And every time she does, you'll have to go after her, and you'll have to bring her home, and you'll have to forgive her over and over and over and over again. Why? Why would you do that to me? Here's the reason. Because you'll never understand what my life is like with my people until you go through that yourself. Suffer well like I suffer for you. You want to know what it's like to be me? Marry an unfaithful spouse. Because that's what my life is like. This is the life of a prophet. Go ahead, Hosea. Go ahead, Jeremiah. Go ahead, Isaiah. Their lives are a mess. Are you kidding me? Nothing went right for them. And yet... To each of them, God says, I want you to hyperstand for me. I want you to obey me. I want you to follow me. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though it looks like lunacy to you. And yet they obeyed. In spite of the fact that nothing was going right in their lives, that everything that they experienced seemed like utter foolishness. They obeyed anyway, and the result is that they triumphed. The fact that we know their names today means that they kept their their eye on the prize. They followed after him rather than the way that their own wisdom told them to go. There's a great, um, really old fairy tale that uh, is called The Princess and the Goblin. In fact, I've heard that it's one of J.R.R. Tolkien's favorites from his childhood. So it actually is old. I'm not just saying it's old and it was like 15 years ago, okay? I've been accused of that before. So (laughs) this is actually old, okay? And, And this is how the story goes. There's a little princess and she has a fairy grandmother. And the fairy grandmother comes to the princess and warns her and says, you're in danger, There are goblins, and when these goblins come for you, I want you to come and find me because there's safety with me. And so the princess says, well, how am I going to find you? And the grandmother gives the little girl a ball of thread, and she attaches the thread to a ring, and she puts the ring on the princess's finger, and then she puts the other end of the string in her house, and she says, I want you to follow this string. Follow the thread. When you're in danger... When the goblins come for you, take your ring off, put it under your pillow, and you'll be able to feel the thread. You're the only one who's going to feel it. And I want you to follow that thread to me. But here's the thing that you need to know. The thread may take you in directions and places that seem like they're incredibly dangerous, that seem like they're the wrong direction to go. But whatever you do, you follow that thread no matter what. You keep your eyes on the prize. You follow it. If you leave it, if you try to go another way, you're going to be lost. But if you hold on, you'll find me because I'll be at the other end. The story goes on and ends up that she ends up in great danger and she begins to follow the thread. Every other time that she followed the thread, she found her grandmother very easily. She was upstairs in the house or she was nearby, but not this time. This time the the thread takes her out the door and up the mountain and right into the goblin's lair. 
as she tried to go back to go another way, but the thread disappears. And she follows the thread, and it ends up leading her right into the den where she ends up rescuing someone from the goblins who she didn't even know was in danger. But lo and behold, there he is. And then he says to her, how are we going to get out of here? And she says, I need to follow the thread. And they begin to follow it. And it's leading the wrong way again. He goes, no, 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 I tried to get out that way. We can't do it. It's blocked. We'll never do it. We're going to die. And she says, I have to go that way. I have to follow the thread no matter how stupid it looks. I have to. And ultimately they get out and they find the grandmother. They're reunited to her. Now here's the point. You cannot follow your own wisdom and expect to develop the kind of endurance and patience that you need for life. See, because oftentimes God's wisdom will look like complete suicide, like it's headed in the wrong direction, like it's complete foolishness. And you'll think, there is no way I can possibly follow the thread in that direction. I have to go this way. And God says, no, 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 follow the thread. See, the only way that you can... Because some of you, 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 maybe you've experienced God pulling you and tugging you in a certain direction. You're like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. But you need to develop trust in the one who's at the other end of the thread. And here's the, the thing. Here's the only way that you can grow in trust, that, that you can follow the thread through the difficulties of life, not run away, not run in the opposite direction, not become impatient with him is when you see that he is the one who is full of compassion and mercy. And there's no greater picture of that than Jesus on the cross. Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Jesus was the man who, though he was the son of God, used his life for the sake of others and ended up being killed for it. See, because when people looked at Jesus on the cross... Even the people who loved him the most, they're watching him up there being crucified, which is the most horrible way that you could die in the first century. And they're saying to themselves, this doesn't make any sense. How in the world could this happen? The one who had incredible power over sickness and death to wipe out disease is now dying himself. The one who had all the wisdom of heaven, who could heal everything that we experience in our hearts, is now losing his life. How are we going to get the wisdom? He's supposed to be the Son of God, and yet the Father is crucifying him on the cross. Why? Why, Father, would you do this? See, the truth is, they they looked at the greatest act of mercy and compassion and wisdom that the world had ever seen, and everyone says, This is wrong. How can this be? I mean, the only reason that we don't see it that way is because we have a book to explain the whole thing, right? We know the end of the story. We understand why it's the wisdom of God because God was saving us through that work. He was paying for our sin and giving us new life. We understand it, but they didn't. They didn't know where that thread was leading. They're just looking at the worst possible thing that's ever happened to them and they're going, this cannot be. See, the fairy grandmother didn't explain to the little princess why the thread was going the way it did. She just said, follow it. And the princess followed the wisdom of the grandmother instead of her own little eight-year-old wisdom. And the result was that her grandmother saved her. God didn't tell Isaiah, this is why nobody's going to listen to you. God didn't say to Jeremiah, this is why you're going to be so hated. God didn't tell Job, this is why everything needs to be taken away from you. 
He never explains why. He just says, trust me. Follow the thread and it'll lead to me. And they did. They endured. And here's the thing. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can too. When you look at the one that kept his finger on the thread, and that thread took him to the cross, and you think, there's no way that this thread is leading to life. It's going away. It's going in the opposite direction. But here's the thing. It was leading to life. Not just life for him, but life for everyone who believes in him. But it was on the other side of the cross. Resurrection couldn't happen unless the cross happened. And neither can your patience, your becoming like Jesus happen unless it happens on the other side of trials and hardship and difficulty and pain. You take your finger off the thread, you try to go in a different direction, and you become less like him. You keep your finger on the thread and you follow him through it. And on the other side is life. And then you get what James says that a farmer gets when they put stuff into the ground. You know, when when a farmer puts in watermelon seeds, what comes out? Watermelons. How do they know? Because the seed is in the ground. And the ground does its work and the seed does its work. And and they, they wait patiently for it. But here's the thing. We can think that we live our lives in this kind of way where we're just looking at empty ground and we're going, God, I, I don't see life. I don't see fruit. I don't see anything, but I will trust that the seed is in the ground. We get something better than that. Because Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep in him. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You don't just get to look at the infertile ground of your life and go, I don't see anything. You get to look at the resurrection and you go, that's the first fruit. That's how I know. That's how I can trust. I don't just look at the circumstances of my life and not see God working. I look at the cross and the resurrection and I go, that's the first fruits. And if he was able to bring fruit out of death, he can bring fruit out of this. And so I'll trust him. And I'll walk with him. And I'll follow the thread. Because I know it's going to lead to the fruit on the other end, which is life with him. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you, want, do you want to see him face to face? Do you want to experience the embrace of his love in the new heavens and the new earth? Does that give you chills when you think about the fact that your creator who gave his life for you is going to stand before you and welcome you with open arms into the kingdom of heaven forever and ever? If it doesn't, you don't have a pulse. But if you do have a pulse, if that does make your heart race, then that's the evidence that you can follow him and that he's on the other end. So let's pray and ask that he would give us that kind of endurance and patience. Father, we do need it. We need your love, we need your grace, and we need the hope that comes from the gospel. We, we get so sidetracked by temporary things. 
We're so easily impatient with the people around us. Help us to see all the ways that you've been patient with us, God. And yes, help us to keep our finger on the thread and our eyes on you. You are our Lord. You are our very great reward. Give us patience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.